This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners, Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about equity compensation once again. But more specifically, we're talking about the impact of your equity comp on your overall portfolio, how to develop a strategy to know when to exercise, as well as some tools available to help you wind down and diversify a concentrated stock position. A couple years ago, I wrote a blog post titled How Much is Too Much When It Comes to Owning Stock in the Company You Work For? And in it, I shared my own views that not only is it important to set an upper limit on how much of one's company stock you're comfortable holding in your overall portfolio, but also designing a plan around how and when to go about winding down that position. For those clients who decide that they're either too heavily concentrated or they want to take some chips off the table, the reality is that exiting out of a large equity position is rarely an easy, one-and-done decision. And it shouldn't be treated as such. Instead, it should be seen as an intermediate to long-term plan to be executed over a number of years and revisited at least annually as things change. And while we financial planners are great at telling clients that they are overly concentrated in a particular position and that they should diversify it, one of the things we're not as great at is explaining how. That is, how to tactically go about safely unwinding that position to make sure to minimize the tax bite and make the client aware of any other unintended consequences that could come about as a result of selling. So on today's episode, I'll be speaking with the creator of the software I use personally that helps me help clients determine how much of their portfolio is being driven by just one or two stock positions, as well as what a meaningful increase or decrease in the price of those shares would mean for their overall net worth, as well as their broader financial plan. Bill Dilhofer is the president and CEO of Network Strategies Incorporated, maker of StockOpter.com, which is the software I just mentioned designed to allow financial planning professionals to answer some complex questions on behalf of clients who are paid in company stock and options. Bill has been with Network Strategies since 2000, and among other things, he's responsible for the constant updating and improvement of the StockOpter software. He has both a BA in economics and an MBA. And prior to joining Network Strategies, Bill spent over 25 years in both the technology and financial services industries. So I think he's uniquely positioned to help us shed some light on this topic today. 
So with that brief introduction, welcome, Bill, to the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you, Malcolm. So I breezed through your resume pretty quickly in my intro. What did I miss? Well, you know, the main thing is, is my company has been around for over 20 years. We were started during the dot bomb, the infamous dot bomb era when when uh, companies were granting employee stock options to everybody in the janitor. And all we do is we the one thing that we do in our business is we focus on providing tools to financial advisors primarily to help them provide equity compensation guidance to to people that receive company stock and options. And one of the challenges that you and I have talked about to that end a number of times in the past is the fact that employers may provide resources around education to help their plan participants, you know, understand their equity comp and what it is, but they don't necessarily provide much in the way of guidance or tell them what to do with those shares once they vest. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that gap persists? Well, well, that's correct. Um, companies cannot give their employees advice on what to do with their company stock and options mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. One, it's a big conflict of interest. I mean, hmm. Companies telling employees to hold, you know, the company stock and not diversify it. You know, they could probably be sued for that. The second thing is, is that the people who administer the company stock plan, they're, they're accountants, you know, they're, they're people who are very knowledgeable about the stock plan, but they're not financial advisors. They're not trained to provide personal financial guidance. But to that end, there's also not many financial planners who operate in this space or offer equity compensation planning as part of their process. So do you think that's for the same reason or is something else different happening there? There are a lot of financial advisors and Mm -hmm. financial advisors, they're sharp. A lot of them have their CFP, Certified Financial Planners Certificate. The equity compensation space is complicated. It needs specialized knowledge and specialized tools And a lot of financial advisors just, you know, don't want to get into it. You know, they don't want to take the time to understand a company's uh, stock plan. And as for the taxes, they'll often punt that issue to the client's uh, CPA. So a lot of financial advisors say, you know, when you're ready to exercise and sell your company stock and or options, let me know and I'll help you reinvest the the uh, proceeds. That's really not a good strategy for advisors because once the, once a individual decides to exercise and and sell, they probably aren't going to spend the money. They're not going to necessarily reinvest it. And that's something that clients should do to reinvest to lower their risk. Well, it's, it's also interesting because, uh, in a previous episode, I had on the head of Charles Schwab's uh, stock plan services. And one of the things that she educated me on was the fact that equity comp plans are going beyond the traditional Silicon Valley tech companies that we normally would think of as being, you know, the places that employees are being compensated with equity, whether it's RSUs or incentive stock options or non-quals or whatever. Uh, They're expanding into other industries where younger 
employees are driving this conversation around, we want to own a piece of the pie. And so in your more traditional industries as well, they're demanding equity comp as part of their total compensation package, which means that the pool of people who are needing advice on on this topic is growing, right? At a time where we're talking about uh, the average financial planner not being super interested in in helping clients make those decisions. So I guess I shouldn't say too much on that because then that's helping our firm's competition to to get smarter uh, on this um, since we are a, a firm that's kind of focused in this area. But it's just interesting to me that, you know, as demand is continuing to increase, supply is remaining rather constant. So so equity compensation is kind of interesting in, in that it's it's evolving mm-hmm. um, during the dot bomb era, companies were granting a lot of employee stock options. Since then, restricted stock units have become the most popular form of equity Mm -hmm. compensation granted. But companies are also granting what we call performance shares. So instead of time-based vesting, the shares vest if the company achieves a a performance goal, like sales of a certain certain number. So a lot of employees are getting a mix. Particularly higher level executives, they'll get um, non-qualified stock options, they might get performance award, and they'll get r- restricted stock. And then, and then individuals can also participate in a company's employee stock purchase plan, ESPP, to buy shares at a at a discount. All mm-hmm. of these vehicles mean that clients are getting confused with with what to do with all of these things. And as they acquire more and more of these vehicles that vest and become owned or or long shares, um, they get more and more concentrated, um, taking on more and more risk. Yeah. And, you know, we'll get into it in in this episode, particularly the the dangers around that concentration risk. But as you're talking, I can't help but think about a company like uh, WeWork, where, you know, they, everybody's internally drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Everybody is, is on this IPO train and we're going to go public. This is a unicorn that can't be stopped. This is a decacorn that can't be stopped. Everybody here is going to be rich. And then one day, all of a sudden, the company goes from, I think it was like 47 billion at one point was their valuation to, you know, maybe 10 or, or six or whatever it f- kind of fell down to. And they're now talking for the fourth time about going public. But that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking about is, is, you know, you just never know. But anyway, so to start us off really on the, the, the planned topic, if you will, you know, I know that you have a checklist of features or details that planned participants need to understand prior to making any deci- decisions about those grants that you're talking about. What's on that checklist? There's no, checklist per per se. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to company stock and option grants. There's terms and conditions. There's a vesting schedule for options. There's an exercise price and an expiration date. So there's a lot of moving parts to these things that a lot of clients have trouble understanding. And it's, it's important and but not necessarily easy to to review the the grant document. The mm-hmm. grant document has all of these details in them, you know, regarding if there's an IPO or if the uh, company of the person retires 
or they um, or, or they die. I mean, what happens to these to these grants? And it's very important for individuals who are receiving these things to either review these documents themselves or provide them to their financial advisor who's going to go through them with, you know, with them. Yeah, it, it's interesting because like no two plan documents are, are created equal. And then even inside of one company, you could have 10 different tiers of employee that have different plan documents, right? Different grant arrangements and agreements and all that kind of stuff. And then even people who work in the same division or on the same pod could have different documents uh, with different grant dates and and everything else. And so uh, it's interesting because, you know, it's not something that's easily Googleable, I guess, is is the way that I mean that. And I know that you have sort of your your qualms with Fred from engineering, as you call him, that that dishes out water cooler advice. Um, but that's really where a lot of times people end out getting their information, if not from a professional that specializes in in that space. Well, so we we spoke earlier that companies they can't provide their clients with guidance, okay? But they provide them with with education. Mm-hmm. Where these people are getting their guidance from is the water cooler. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned before, a financial advisor by the name of John Berenger, he came up with this concept that every company has a employee we call Fred from Engineering, mm-hmm. who has got a spreadsheet. And he's happy to help anybody who's willing to willing to uh, to talk to him. And unfortunately, that information, the water cooler information is highly biased. Yeah. And can be very unrealistic. They, I mean, everybody thinks their company stock price is going to go to a thousand. And to the moon. If it, if it doesn't, does that mean you let the options expire? Does that mean you don't sell any of the shares? I mean, you, you've got to, you know, look at the holdings through an kind of an unbiased lens in order to make these uh, decisions. Because over the life of of your employment and the grants that you'll be receiving, you'll have to make a lot of decisions. At a minimum, uh, one a year, if you're receiving a grant of restricted stock or an option grant every every year, you should be considering making a diversification decision every single year. And on that note, as I mentioned, we, as a firm, we are users of the Stockopter software. And so I know that you always say to look at the risk involved and then the value of your options before worrying about the taxes. Why is that? Why do I care more about the risk and, and the value of the options as I'm getting those grants every year that you're talking about? There's an old expression, don't put the tax cart before the horse. Okay. And that mm-hmm. is very applicable to equity compensation. Most of it, like restricted stock units and non-qualified stock options are taxed at ordinary income. The restricted stock units then, they become owned or long shares. And if you sell them, you're going to pay capital gains taxes on that. So there's not a lot of tax optimization other than, you know, you could, you know, how many shares can I sell to keep me within my within my tax bracket. But but the diversification a decision of, you know, when to exercise and sell and reinvest in something else, um, whether it be real estate or or other 
you know, stock market um, instruments like mutual funds or ETFs really needs to be based on, on risk. And there's a variety of risks in equity compensation holdings. Uh, they include concentration, forfeit value, leverage, the volatility of the stock. All these things are risks that need to be illustrated for clients to help them understand that they shouldn't just wait to the last minute and and shouldn't just wait till the stock hits $1,000 before taking action. But I mean, even as far as the taxes are concerned, right? Your advice to get familiar with the tax treatment of the options sort of after the fact, but still know what types of taxes they will pay, right? On each tranche of shares is probably still important to some degree because each each tranche is going to receive different types of treatment because as people stay with a company for longer periods of time, as you mentioned, some companies have gone to RSUs almost completely. Other companies, it's still very diversified how they offer it. So you could have different share grants with much different tax treatments and much different tax profiles based on how long you've been there, how high you got up into the ranks. And the way you exercise those to diversify your positions is going to change, too, depending on the types of shares that you, you know, you ultimately own. Correct. Correct. I don't advocate ignoring, you know, taxes. I mean, one of the things that our software does is it calculates the approximate after-tax value of non-qualified stock options at, at a current or future stock price and the own share lots that have been accumulated by restricted stock units that have that have vested. Each one of those will have an acquisition date and mm-hmm. an acquisition price, which then are used to calculate the cost basis. And then depending if the shares are held for w- for over one year, you're going to be taxed at the capital gains rate, the current capital gains rate. Or if it, they're not held for one year, they're going to be taxed at the client's ordinary income rate. So absolutely, you've got to you've got to consider taxes, but they shouldn't necessarily drive the decision. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I want to I want to go back a little bit because I heard you mention a totally different concept unrelated to taxes, but equally as important, I would think, uh, which is actually something your software is designed to help people know and understand, which is the forfeiture value of their shares. Can you explain what that term means and why it's important? So the forfeit value is what the client or what the individual is leaving on the table, Mm -hmm. okay, if they leave the company prior to retirement, and work for work for a competitor. And so that value is made up of the current or intrinsic value of the any stock options and any restricted stock grants that that haven't been vested. But it also what we do is we also factor in, I mean options have a value over and above their intrinsic value because um, they have a fixed exercise price. Mm-hmm. Um, the underlying stock is volatile and the option expires in, in the future. So they've got a concept we call time value. So, so we calculate 
forfeit value, including the time value of the vested options, the full option value of the unvested option, and then the current intrinsic value of any restricted stock grants. I mean, the vested options you get to take with you, the own shares, you, you already you already own them, but things that are, are, are not vested yet and the time value associated with those things is what you leave on the, on the table. And for younger employees that are very mobile, looking at offers all the time, knowing what that forfeit value is, is, yep. is very important. So let's turn the conversation now toward concentration risk, right? That's, that's, that's kind of our main course, if you will. And I know that's a big part of what your software is designed to help advisors like me explain to our clients. Can you just explain what concentration risk even is and why it's such an important part of the conversation? So concentrated stock positions are a two-edged sword. One is they make, they can make people very, very wealthy, mm-hmm. but they're also risky. Because if you've got all your eggs in one basket, if the stock price goes down, your total net worth is going to be tremendously affected if you're highly concentrated in that stock. So this is how equity compensation concentration is is calculated. We take the the pre-tax intrinsic value of the vested options, Mm -hmm. the unvested options, the restricted stock and any owned or, or long shares. And we compare those against the value of the client's other investments that could be in their brokerage account or 401k, et cetera. So mm-hmm. let me give you a, a little example. So if a client basically has $800,000 in okay. total company stock and and options and another $200,000 in other investments that are in their 401k, roughly they're 80% concentrated. And if the stock price goes down, you know, uh, t- takes a big dive, then because of that concentration, it'll have a, a profound impact on their overall wealth. So, so that's why being able to at any time and this is what our software does, being able to see where you're at in terms of concentration and be able to play some what ifs. What if the stock price goes up? What if the stock price goes goes down? You know, it's very important to keep that in mind, to avoid, you know, to to stay balanced with this concentration risk. A little concentration is is good. Too much con- concentration, not so good. Yeah, and and I find that Clients may never, ever call you to say thank you when you insist they sell uh, a stock and then it goes down and, you know, you save them a ton of money. Right. If you think about a a client who might have owned Delta Airlines or Carnival Cruise Lines or something like that prior to uh, uh, March 2020, COVID happens and that stock gets cut in half. If you help them diversify out of that position before that happened, they, they almost never call and say, you know, thank you for insisting that that I, I diversify out of that. But they never, 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 never forget that time you recommend that they sell a stock and then that stock goes up some more from that point. Um, you never live that one down. So it's kind of a catch-22 uh, for know, sure. So. Advisors are, are very good at 
telling clients about concentration risk, uh, but you really have to illustrate it. You got to show them the pie chart that shows how concentrated they are. And you need to run some, some what ifs so they can visually see that concentration risk. Cause if you just tell them that concentration is, is risky, it's not as effective as showing them what, what happens to their net worth if the, if the stock price goes down. So let's dig into that a little bit more than like say a little bit more about how to know when to diversify out of a position, right? If you're the the holder of that $800,000 position, it's 80% of your overall portfolio. How do I know when it makes sense to diversify out of that that position? Okay, so for restricted stock and and own shares. So if, mm-hmm. if you're getting restricted stock grants that are time vested every year or quarter, or whatever the vesting schedule is, you're getting these shares that that become own shares and the individual receives net own shares, which is the company will withhold um, 22% for Fed and maybe something for for the state. So the client will get will get the net shares as an own share lot. Okay, and if they've accumulated a lot of these shares over the years, then they will have numerous lots and they'll mm-hmm. be will be able to see how concentrated they are. So one of the analytics that we have in Stockopter, we call it the share diversification analysis, which is a five-year analysis and applies a stock price growth rate, but also accounts for all of the net shares that are vesting, vesting e- each year. And then mm-hmm. to that, we can apply a diversification rate. I think our default is, is 10%. And then, so we're going to sell 10% of these own shares every year and take the after-tax proceeds and add that to their other investments, okay? Yeah. And then we can, we can graph that out, okay? So you can visually see that if you're only doing 10% a year or 15% a year, is that closing the gap or, or your concentration level or not? So you can visually see that, you know, what that target should, should be, whether it should be, you should be selling 10%, 15%, 20%. I don't advocate throwing the baby out with a bathwater and selling all of the shares, but particularly if you're getting, um, restricted stock that's vesting each year, you need to be selling a percentage of those shares to kind of counterbalance that that increase in concentration. One of the things I like that it allows me to illustrate from my own edification, sure, but also for the clients, uh, where we have a conversation, you know, clients 45 years old, they come in saying they want to retire at 50, right? And a lot of the clients we work with are in tech. So retiring at 50 is absolutely like a possibility for, for lots of people. Um, but they say they want to retire at 50. We do this analysis, run the Monte Carlo simulations in the background and return them this number that says, you know, you need to have $4 million in the bank before you can turn in your papers and turn in your badge and say, I'm done. I'm going to go work at a nonprofit or be a basketball coach or whatever I decide to do that, you know, gives my life a little more uh, fulfillment and meaning. Right. So 
$4 million was the number we knew that we needed to get to. And in the system, I'm actually able to show them uh, what that means in terms of the share price of the stock that they already hold, which is really cool. So if I have a stock that's trading at $25 today and I can show that client that as soon as that stock doubles in value, so it gets to $50 a share, they're at their $4 million number. Or you stay there long enough that you get another four or five grants, right? Because that's going to equal a few hundred thousand dollars in there, presumably, too. And over that time span, just letting letting it rest and rest invest is the term I'll use. You know, you stay there that five years, allow those shares you have accumulated to vest, and that gets you to your four million dollar number. So we know literally all you have to do is stay there with that employer for another five years, not make any waves or upset anybody. And there's your $4 million, right? You gave us that target. There's your number. Now it's time to get out. Because one of the other tougher things I asked you the win question, but another one of the tough things is helping people determine why now is the time to sell those shares. And so being able to show you here's your number and here's what you're going to use those shares to do. And so the why is, you wanted to retire at 50. Here we go. We got you there. Time to sell. And and that sometimes I think could be helpful in illustrating that point as well to people who need to see it to believe it. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree that, you know, there's a lot of moving parts. Clients will get new grants over the over the year. So it's you've got to monitor the portfolio. I say semi-annually or minimum annually, you know, mm-hmm. and and have these discussions about has the goal changed? Did you get new grants? Has the stock price continued to appreciate? All these things will go into that long-term decision. And and it, it's an incremental, it's an incremental game, incremental process that you're just making slight changes. When you diversify, you're just taking some of it off the table, reinvesting it in, in something else so that you're not affected as much if the stock price takes a, it takes a, a dive. So, so that's the purpose of doing ongoing planning is because things change. So let's say, though, that I I have my conversation with the client, I present them my fancy stock opter graphics that convince them, you know, diversification is not a dirty word. It it is a good idea to not have so many eggs in that basket. Right. So going back to back to your example of the person who's got 80 percent of their net worth in that company stock. So eight hundred thousand out of a million dollar portfolio is in that one company stock. Is there a recommended range or percentage of their overall net worth that you say should be allocated to? one company's stock and then not a dollar more? No, no. You know, there's no there's no hard and fast rule on how much should be diversified each year or or what that concentration percentage should should not go not go above. Okay. You know, it it depends on the individual's, you know, outlook on the company. Are they risk adverse? Are they young? Are they close to, to retirement age? If you're 80% concentrated and you're in your 20s, that's very different than being 80% concentrated and being five years from retirement. 
from when you, you want to retire. So you got to take all those things into consideration. And what we're doing with our software is we're laying out the facts for advisors to show the client, to illustrate these, these concepts, and then to kind of make these decisions on an ongoing, ongoing basis. Because there's no, there's no right or wrong when it comes to diversifying your company stock or options or how concentrated is bad. And I know, you know, from, from learned or earned experience that diversification is a emotional process for the client, right? It's not a band-aid to be ripped off, as I said, like immediately one day and then never again. It, it's taken me some years to learn that as a practitioner, but like I understand it now from the client's perspective. But that said, is there a time period or a number of years that you'd recommend a person plan around to diversify out of a concentrated position, right? So you mentioned that 10% number is, is kind of where the software defaults to, to tell you, but is that over a 10 year period, a five year period, a year? Like, how do you, how do you work through that as a rule of thumb? So if a client is getting restricted stock units that are vesting every K, if they've been getting these grants for years and years and have, and have already have accumulated a large number of own share lots, Okay, then they need to be a little more aggressive than somebody who has just started to get restricted stock and they're not real, really concentrated so that they can, you know, make decisions. Well, let's let's sell 10 percent, you know, every every year. But somebody who's accumulated a, a bunch of shares, okay, and is. 80% 80% concentrated, they need to be more aggressive in the number of shares that they're going to sell every in order to get that number number down. And mm-hmm. you can play those what ifs in our in our software to kind of see. So it really depends on on how concentrated has this client become because they haven't been regularly diversifying. Well, so from a tactical perspective though, right? What we're essentially talking about is having the client dollar cost average out of their position, right? So every year the plan is to sell a a specified set of shares out of their uh, portfolio one way or another. But how do I do it, right? Odds are as a plan participant, I'm having to go in and place those trades to make this happen myself. So am I just setting a calendar alert to remind myself to sell 100 shares or 500 shares or whatever on the first of the month? Do I sell a specific dollar amount at the end of every year? How do I actually wind down the position from a tactical perspective? Well, I think you start with the overall analysis of how many shares, you know, need to be sold in in a given year to get to that desired concentration level. Mm, I see. Mm -hmm. And then, then it's just the mechanics of setting a limit order at Mm -hmm. a a target stock price that's reasonable, you know, <laughs> that you know is gonna is gonna happen, and sell sell a number of shares. You can do it by you can do it by quarter. You can do it by by month. But you already know what that target is. You've already identified the total number of shares that you that you need, and the approximate stock price. Then it's just a, a matter of entering those those orders. 
And that's where the tax nerd in me jumps out and, and can't help but say this is this is the part where it does matter a ton uh, from a tax perspective, the, the outcome of those decisions. Because as you were saying, with a person with RSUs, for example, restricted stock units, that they've accumulated those shares over time and never sold anything. The specific lot that you sell based on its uh, price when the, the stock, the shares were issued to you on that date is going to determine what your tax liability is. And then obviously, right, you want to sell the ones that are longer than 12 months in in, in ownership date to, to get it to capital gains treatment. But like that's going to make a significant difference, too. So at least you want to be having a conversation with your accountant during that decision or while executing that. Um, if nobody else, you, you definitely want to talk to whoever does your taxes for some guidance around that, because that could cause uh, quite a bit of heartburn, too, uh, if done improperly. Well, one of the things that's important to do, and in, in our software does this, is track all of these own share lots mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the cost basis of those those things. And then, you know, based on some guidance from either you, Malcolm, or from the client CPA, you can decide whether you want to sell the shares with the highest cost basis. I mean, which which lots and in and in what order? You, you definitely probably don't want to sell a share lot that hasn't been held for one year because you'll be paying ordinary income and not right. not the capital gains rate. But you'll have the cost basis. You'll be able to track the cost basis of all of these lots and then make make the decision whether you want to sell the highest, the shares for the highest cost basis or the lowest cost basis, mm-hmm. depending on what the CPA thinks is a good idea. But you'll have all of that information to enable the the CPA to make their recommendation. So I appreciate you being so charitable with your time here. This is, I mean, you've shared a ton in this that I think is, is uh, super helpful to, to the audience that this is designed to serve. But before we, before we wrap, do you have any final thoughts or or other rules of thumb for our listeners to help make sure that they at least avoid some of the, the easier unforced errors, if you will? Well, my first rule of thumb and recommendation to clients is pick an advisor who has a process for tracking and analyzing their equity compensation holdings. Mm-hmm. That's that's very important. The second thing is we've been talking a lot about restricted stock units. You know, clients are still getting um, employee stock options, and mm-hmm. one of the metrics that we have within our app application is called the insight ratio. And it's very good at identifying the order and the urgency of exercising an employee stock option grant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what the insight ratio is, it's the time value of the option divided by the full option value. So for example, an ins- a grant with an insight ratio of 10% means of that grant's total value, 10% is time value, and the reciprocal 90% um, is intrinsic value, and it's at risk if the stock price goes goes down. So grants that are under 10% time value, even if they've got a number of years left, means that that they have the stock price has appreciated considerably, and that option is deep in the money. You know, so so that's what we use when the client has options, when to exercise the, the options. And the insight ratio, you know, there's no right or wrong number for pulling the uh, 
tr trigger. So it's good to use an advisor to calculate this for you if you're getting employee stock options. Sure. I'm glad you remembered that too. That was actually one of the keys that, that the software does that I appreciate, especially since I get email alerts to tell me when this is happening, right? Bill's Amazon stock just hit $3,500 a share. And so that means blah, 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 um, kind of takes some of the, the heavy lifting off of the, the shoulders of the advisor. But I certainly appreciate this, Bill. This has been tons and tons of great information that I don't think people can get many other places. So I really appreciate, like I said, you being so generous with your time. But where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or Stockopter after this goes live? So my website is stockopter.com. S-T-O-C-K-O-P-T-E-R.com. And there's lots of information and articles about this whole equity compensation industry. It's designed primarily for financial advisors, but the more technical clients will, um, will enjoy it as, as well. So sure. that's where they, they, can, they can find information about myself and Stockopter. Well, awesome. We certainly appreciate it. Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? I'd be happy to. Bill, thank you so much for being here. You're incredibly knowledgeable, and I just love listening and learning uh, from the guests that Malcolm brings on the show. And of course, Malcolm, thank you for bringing him on the show. And our last thank you always goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on 
every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Gllc.com.